The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Hello, St. Louis. This is Arnold Stricker. Ellie Wharton is on assignment. You're listening to In Tune, which is a two-hour weekly broadcast focusing and reflecting on issues that impact and connect our community in the greater St. Louis area. Our topics include the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, history, housing, humor, and justice. And we're not going to talk about the weather today because that changes every minute. And maybe you have looked outside and nothing's going on, and we're still wondering that our bets from Las Vegas are actually going to pay off as to when the snow is actually going to accumulate or if it's even going to start. So you can keep that uh, in the forefront of your mind as you look out the window and you're listening as you're driving down the road or as you're listening at home and you're looking out the window. But uh, in studio today, we have some very, very special guests because they have a real passion for uh, preserving the past and making sure that the future understands what uh, architecture and art have done in our community. And they are uh, uh, Amrit and Amy Gill. Amrit, welcome to In Tune this morning. Amy, good to see you again. Thank you for coming this morning. Thank you for having us. They are, um, they have developed the, uh, well, I ought to let them talk about the the magnificent hotel that's downtown, Hotel St. Louis, which is a Louis Sullivan uh, architectural beauty. And many times we hear in our city about the Wainwright building, that it's, uh, you know, one of the first the first skyscraper that was el- ever developed, but we've not really heard about this particular building, and I had the, the pleasure of uh, taking a tour with them this morning and looking at that, and it's just an unbelievable facility. You guys have done a tremendous job. Thank you very much on behalf of St. Louis. Oh, thanks. It is the uh, former Union Trust building um, located at 705 Olive. And for years, it was an office building. It, we're actually the second owner so um, of a building that was built in 1890. So That's crazy. That, yeah, it's hilarious, isn't it, that we're the second owner, but it was owned by the Sella family. And um, they sold it to us. Um, and um, it, it was for years an office building and then primarily vacant over the last 10 or 15 years. And um, so we had the opportunity to buy it from the Sella family and uh, create Hotel St. Louis, which is our homage to the city of St. Louis. And that's going that's a uh, Marriott Hotel, is that correct? It's a Marriott autograph. It's part of their autograph collection. So it's not your average Marriott Hotel. It's a luxury boutique hotel, 140 rooms. Um, and it has uh, two restaurants, a sky bar, pool, uh, ballroom, and spa. And then um, uh, it's just, but it's a wonderful architectural gem. Now, it's, interestingly enough, the tagline for uh, autograph collection is exactly like nothing else. And this building is exactly like nothing else. Really? That's, that's interesting. And, and the tagline for Lewis Sullivan, which is very, very famous... 
Form follows function. Form follows function. And yep. he, he really <clears throat> did that in this particular facility. Uh, as you described what it was like, and there's, there are no pictures that you said you found uh, of the interior at all. It's very unusual for a Lewis Sullivan <coughs> building to not have interior photographs, but um, we contacted the foremost Lewis Sullivan authorities across the United States, guys that spend basically their entire lives just cataloging and uh, uh, documenting his work, and none of them could find any interior photos of this building. And the Sella family had the building built, so we thought, well, they must have interior pictures, and they don't have any either. So it was kind of a fun guessing game. We had a friend of ours from the National Park Service came down um, and was poking around in the ceiling of the then second floor. There was no, we have an atrium now. And he said, oh, there was a skylight here. You can tell because it was a New York style skylight, the, the glass pucks, right? Mm -hmm. And he said, there was a skylight here. And so we started digging around and sure enough, there was a skylight there. And then from that, we realized that there must have been a stained glass skylight. And then from that, when we were doing demo, we had decided to do that. And then we found a piece of it oh. buried in the ceiling under four other layers of ceiling. It was oh unbelievable. That's crazy. That's crazy. And is there are there plans to reconstruct that or show that at some point at time? Yes, yes. The young man who's doing our um, stained glass, who's a local St. Louis guy's name is Adam Johnson. He is going to take that piece, that Lewis Sullivan piece, and um, and fix it. Right. We don't really want to do much to it other than fix it and put it behind glass, and then we'll be displaying it at the hotel. Now, what are some things like that? I've always I'm always curious about these things. What are some surprises that you uncovered like that? Are there any any other things like that that you uncovered? We found two bands of his original plaster, and that allowed us to uh, uh, replicate that plaster and put it where we think he would have had it in, in that uh, two-story atrium. Because I think what happens a lot of times is in periods of remodeling or things like that, people cover over things because it's not, quote-unquote, stylish at the time. Because even in the front... Uh, as I was reading, and you could speak more to this, the original windows were round, and and in the twenties, the early twenties, they gave it an Art Deco look and made them square. What do you know any more about those kinds of things? Well, I think they made them square. My guess is because they took up a lot of space. But the other thing is they wanted to put more retail on the first floor. I, the space was expensive. This was the most expensive piece of ground and building in the United States for over 30 years, right? Wow. And in common terms, if you were to take that money and extrapolate it to today, it would be one of the most expensive pieces of real estate ever. And uh, so the, what they did was they made these square windows. They got rid of the arched opening on the front of the building and put in a square opening so they could add more retail. Um, when we went back, we wanted to put the original round windows back in on the second floor, but the Park Service said that we could not do that because it's a historic project. It's governed by the National Park Service, and they said because it was changed to the square windows during what they call the period of significance of the building, we could not do that, but that we could take and put back the 1920s 
entrance, which we could replicate exactly. So now what we've done is in cast stone, we've replicated the original 1920s entrance. Because it's interesting when you look at those very, very old pictures of the original round windows and then see what has been done, what was done in the 20s to convert it. Uh, it, it really, it kind of takes the front of the building and Change almost it. rubs it off. Yes, changes it. And there are some, what, on the west side, still some round windows, the originals? that Yes, that along you can, the alley. Yeah. Yes. And in a place nobody ever goes. Right. Well, right. we preserved them, and we actually have a couple of them in our, one in a boardroom and one in a meeting room. And they are fabulous because those windows, uh, when we were... Uh, talking about that down there, they actually open up in a variety of ways to allow air to, to move and flow through the building. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. Uh, even the large center panel pivots so that you can just pivot it open. He had, out of the five pieces of glass in each round window, all of them opened back in, you know, 1892 or whatever. And that building was also known to be one that was supposed to let a lot of light in. Uh, it was one of the, what, first examples of that to, uh, you probably know, again, more, and more know about that than I And there's tons of light in this building. They're, the windows are enormous. And he really believed in letting light and air into the building. It's funny, in most hotels, you can't open the windows. People don't want you to open the windows. They have positive pressure and it costs more, you know. And when we were looking at it, we said, okay, we're not going to do that. We're going to make it so all the windows open, right? So that people can have fresh air in their room if they want to. But also because that's what he would have originally designed and what he wanted was people to be able to get fresh air. Obviously, we have to meet code. So we have window restrictors. You can only open them so far. Right, right. Not enough to jump out. Right. (laughs) (laughs) A little safety factor there. So when, uh, you know, I, I... I have a million questions here, and it goes back to, you know, Amy, you have a an undergrad in history, in, uh, or Amrit, you have an undergrad in history and archaeology and uh, MBA, and Amy, you have a, a degree in political science. How do you get into the business of restoring these kinds of buildings? Because this is not your first. You did one in Iowa, uh, and... You, you have a lot of projects going on in the St. Louis area that you've done. You've done the Moolah building and, you know, just unbelievable kinds of restorations. How do you get into that like that? Actually, we've done over 400 oh my historic gosh. buildings. But um, it goes back to our mission of strengthening and enhancing the communities that we operate in by, by redeveloping neglected neighborhoods. Well, neglected neighborhoods tend to be in the city and they tend to have a lot of historic buildings. So we became, we became very proficient at, at restoring these buildings because in order to fulfill our mission, that's what we had to do. Now say that mission again, because I think that's important for people to hear who are redeveloping in the city and who are doing things in the city. So the Restoration St. Louis, our company, its mission is to strengthen and enhance the communities that we operate in by redeveloping neglected neighborhoods and making them great places to live, work, and play. And you've done that where in St. Louis, so people know. We started in the U-City Loop, and we did about, uh, what, about 25, 30 buildings there. And then Skinker de Bolivar, where we did over 100 buildings. Wow. And uh, The Grove, where we've done over 100 buildings. Um, in fact, we have 23 under construction currently. So, you know, we'll be well over 100 there. Um, the uh, St. Louis University, the block of Lindell. 3,700 block of Lindell. Mm-hmm. We spent over $100 million there. Wow. 
the gate neighborhood we've uh, where the Teresa school is right uh, we've redeveloped uh, a large number of properties along Park Avenue um, let's see uh, we've, we've done a few a little bit in Soulard as well so that's another neighborhood we've been involved in um, what other name? Oh, we, Davenport, Iowa, of course, downtown Davenport, Iowa, mm-hmm. uh, where we own two hotels, uh, one in the Daniel Burnham building. Mm-hmm. But we uh, also own like three city blocks worth of buildings there because what happened was we got there, the city had asked us to come and do uh, their big iconic downtown hotel, Think the Chase Park Plaza, for mm-hmm. example. And um, we started on that project and there was a building across the street that um, – was basically falling in on itself. And it was the oldest building in Davenport, Iowa. It's called the Forest Block Building. And we just kept looking at it. And honestly, we started as building huggers. We didn't start to do a neighborhood. It just kind of happened. And when it started happening, we realized how much it would change a neighborhood. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of how we got into it. But we started as building huggers. And we're still those people who drive around going, oh my gosh, that's so cool. Maybe we should, oh, could we do that? That would be so cool. And so... You know, when we were in Davenport, there was this building and it's falling in on itself and we get the history of it. And it's the oldest building in Davenport. And so we called the city one day Mm. and said, "Okay, so if we wanted to do that building and they almost jumped for joy. I mean, it was Well, the building was about to get torn down. And, And strangely enough, in 1974, it had launched the preservation movement in Davenport. And so a lot of other buildings got preserved. But this one was basically just a shell with the roof falling in. And so it never got developed. Well, it's 24 beautiful apartments now. We redeveloped it. We actually had the entire redevelopment done in less than a year. You know, and that's what I've I've seen in the city during the late 60s and 70s, and especially we talked earlier when the Gateway Mall was being developed and everything like that, and, you know, buildings were being knocked down or or abandoned. There was a lot of uh, people leaving the city, and so these buildings were just kind of left and uh, boarded up. Uh, obviously, the uh, famous bar building now is is right. empty, and many other buildings. And people are trying to do some renovation. The old Jefferson Arms apartment building, which is supposed to be a hotel, also on um, what is that Tucker? So uh, when you when you come upon something like that, and you you present that like to the city of Davenport or to to whom you would present that here into the city of St. Louis. Are you always met with open arms? Or are people like, well, you know, here we go again. You know, uh, there's another boutique hotel going in, and what's what's going to happen here? Well, I mean, I think it depends on the city you're in. But um, St. Louis is a very complicated place. We often uh, try to affect change in city policy. It was at a downtown SDL meeting yesterday saying, you know, we, we should not have 42 development uh associations, right? We've got a regional commerce and chamber and a, you know, a county chamber and a city chamber and a city downtown. And, you know, you just, we shouldn't have so many things. It creates fragmentation. And um, I think it hurts the city of St. Louis. Um, But I think um, at least we are lucky enough that so many people in the city recognize that, um, you know, by coming in and redoing these buildings, that we're making an impact. And we get a lot of calls. We get calls from P- from neighborhoods in the city, P- aldermen who call us and say, can you come? Can you look at this neighborhood? Can you look at this street? Can you look at my, you know, and some places it's difficult because there's no employment. 
um, you you have to go somewhere where there's employment. It I starts think, with employment. Yeah. If we were going to bang any drum, it would be we need one giant chamber whose only job is to go out and find businesses to come and move into our town. I mean, if you look at the difference between, you know, Indianapolis or Nashville or even Davenport, Iowa, you know, Davenport's got new businesses coming in in droves. They're going to get a Boeing plant. Why don't we get that? And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that if you have 42 agencies and they're all going in different directions, right? Instead of one big agency whose job is to go get those jobs. Yeah, it's uh, we had had it's Terrence Jones from UMSL on University of Missouri St. Louis about talking about his book Fragmentation, Fragmented by Design, which talked about that city county thing. And you know, agencies develop, uh, I guess, sometimes because they they see a need or because maybe somebody internally wants to do that and 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 uh, cause some kind of change. But as you think about that, it's easier to join an agency that's already been working and moving, and so it can help build more steam and get more traction in in what's going on. We talked uh, off air about jobs and things like that. You also need jobs, but you also provide jobs through the facilities that you have have done. Yeah, we have over 800 people that work for us now. But just just the construction project, uh, um, uh, in fact, uh, here's a fun fact for you. For the last 90 days of the construction on Hotel St. Louis, uh, we had a one-man year of work being put into that building every day. Wow. So there's 90-man years of work that was created in the St. Louis market in the last 90 days just because of one project. Do the contractor, who's the contractor on that? or is it, It's BSI. BSI. Yes. When they are on site and they were looking at this building because it, it is, is such a gem and because of the things that you uncovered, like his original plaster uh, work there and, and also the stained glass thing, do they have the same kind of appreciation or uh, is it like, okay, well, yeah, that's nice? And Oh, no, they, they definitely do. They've been working with us for 20 years, and that wouldn't happen if they didn't. I, I often think, though, that they're very patient with us. I have to give a big shout-out to the guys at BSI because I can't tell you how many times – you know, they'll call me and they'll go, okay, we found this or we found that or, you know, demo and covered this. And I stop and like hold my hands up and go, stop. No, you can't do anything now. We have to redo all the plan, right? Because we found this thing. I mean, on this building alone, so there was a there was a beautiful uh, plaster ceiling in the elevator lobby. It wasn't very big, but it was, a uh, um, think of like a coffered plaster ceiling. Um, that was done probably in the 30s or 40s would be my guess. But it was really beautiful. And we had said, well, okay, we don't have any original plaster work here. We didn't have anything to work with. So we were going to keep that. And then one of the guys putting the HVAC in, it's hel- it was held up. It was suspended. So he clipped one of the lines and a big piece of it fell, right? And so... They all called me and said, okay, now what do we do? Do we have to like put that back? And I get there and of course we're shining a flashlight up and that's where we found the original Lewis Sullivan plaster. It was above that later plaster. Wow. Right? (laughs) So so then I'm standing there and I'm like, okay, plans changed. Right, right. Cut all that down. Throw it away. (laughs) We're going back to this. And they're all looking at me like, have you lost your mind? Right? But they're very... um, I feel like they're very patient with us because every day we come in and go, wait, 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 
look at this, right? So, no, I, and that's what I really appreciate about uh, you two and the conversation that we had this morning is that, you know, going back to those original things, you, you can cover over them and nobody sees them, or maybe not ever know that they're there. But if you find those and can show that as to how the architect originally wanted that building to be seen, we talked about how, you know, uh, you, you took the second floor. Talk a little about, so the listeners can hear this, when you walk into the entrance of the building, you see the elevators in front of you and they're, uh, or they Brass, brass, glorious, big, br- cast brass, unbelievable. unbelievable. And then this, the second floor, which is kind of like an atrium area, you never saw because it was covered over. But now, visually, you look back, and above the second floor, you see elevators again that you've put some. So we, we, we uh, yes, we uh, mimic the first floor uh, marble in such a way that visually. It's all very in in sync. So you you see the elevators on the first floor, and then you see the the marble, exact same marble on the second floor, and so it all looks right. It doesn't. It's not discordant. You know, and we we talked about that at the end of our tour. That, uh, and I'll probably emphasize this point again because it's I think it's something worth emphasizing is that many times how you feel comfortable in a facility or in a building has to do with atmosphere about the people, but it also has to do with the atmosphere that the building is exhibiting to you. And architects, really good architects, can design a facility to make things, obviously, flow. And we, we're talking about the other two words, which were function and form. Right. And rather than have a building that's just kind of designed and, oh, he's got a bunch of office spaces there, or it's a hotel, it's just a bunch of rooms, that he really put a flow into this, and the function was this, and so he designed the form to make it uh, invite you in and keep you involved, especially on the outside. I mentioned that we don't look at the outside of buildings too much, but this building is just crazy incredible, especially when you look up. It, it, oh, yeah. yeah, you have to look up. But I mean, it it's funny. <laughs> it originally had these enormous gargoyles. They were like 14 story, feet tall. Yeah. Two stories tall. They're ridiculous, right? And so we've had over the years people email us saying, "Oh, they took those gargoyles off and they bury they Put them in dumped quarry, them in a quarry." I had lake. some guy volunteer to go uh, dive for scuba and dive <laughs> for these, and I said, you know. I'm not directing you to go do anything that's dangerous, but if you find them and you pull them out, let me know, right? But but I'm definitely not going to, you know, direct you or pay you to do anything that's that dangerous. Um, but it, it's been funny, you know, people will bring up all these different things that were on the front of that building. But when we started putting, we, we ordered new cast stone based on the original castings of the building, which was some of which we had in the basement. Um, when they left, started left from the 1920s renovation, wow! Some of those pieces were in the basement. <laughs> wow! Buried. We found them, <laughs> and so we we did this cast stone. And when it started going up, the people that walk around downtown at their lunch hour and stuff, I would walk I would walk into the building at 11 o'clock, and you just see people standing out there with their mouths open, watching this cast stone go up. You know, because they were so excited by it, yeah. because it really is beautiful. So it's it, that part has been really fun. You know, we go back to um, when the building, uh, the site of the building, which I didn't know this, but it was very interesting, was Henry Shaw's house. Yes. And it was the house that was moved to the brick current by site. Brick, to brick the by Botanical brick. Garden. Yes. And you kind of pay a little homage to Henry Shaw in the uh, stained glass that's uh, going in. Talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah, so um, we are we're putting in a um, 32 pane stained glass um, ceiling mural, basically, um, by a young artist here in town, Adam Johnson. And he, um, when we were doing it, he said, you know, it's pretty, but I don't think it's as pretty as it could be. And we started talking about it, and we started talking about you know, Lewis Sullivan designs. And then we started talking about Shaw. So we decided to add some of Shaw's favorite flowers to the stained glass design in order to do a little bit of an homage to Shaw and the fact that his home stood there. Yeah. I mean, even Lewis Sullivan did an homage to Shaw because he created this beautiful space up on the roof. Right. And we're kind of mimicking. That's where our bar and restaurant called Form is going to be. Yeah. And he had, there was, there was like a greenhouse up there at the time, correct? For the uh, original? Yes. yes. Yeah, originally, yeah. Like a big uh, observatory slash greenhouse. Yeah, yeah. And and the view up there is, is going to be, well, it is incredible, but when the restaurant goes in, it's, it's even going to be more gorgeous. Yeah. It's going to be a great place to uh, bring a guest and get a get a view of the city and, and the river. And you can really uh, see uh, how things are developing in the city. You know, after break, uh, we're going to come up on break here, but I'd, I'd like, kind of like to talk about uh, from the very beginning of the building at the Sh- at the Shaw Mansion, and then kind of work our way up a little bit, but also get into uh, what your design scheme was when you walked in. You know, I see a lot of fleur de lis. I see a lot of of um, the patterns that Sullivan put into uh, the building are are again not mimic throughout, but are are flow throughout in in your designs in your rooms and things like that. I want to want to talk about that. So. Uh, folks, we've got uh, Amrit and Amy Gill, and uh, they are uh, uh, renovating Hotel St. Louis. They've been doing this the last 18 months. I, I couldn't believe that. 18 months to get a renovation of a, what is it, 14 stories? 16. 16, yeah. 16 story roof. building. Yeah, and uh, 18 months has just uh, been the construction, construction process. It was a long time before that because we also had to do architectural plans. Well, good, uh, you know. Pulling off good renovations or good building always comes off of good planning, and you you when you get that planning done right, then uh, and the plans done, everything that you're going to do, little hiccups like uh, what do we do with this uh, molding that fell down? This <laughs> that, that's a little hiccup, but it makes things a lot smoother and a lot easier to to take care of. You no, know, so we're glad that you're in in here because we're going to talk more about Lewis Sullivan. This is Arnold Stricker of Intune. You're listening to KWRH LP 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. in tune you're listening to kwrhlp 92.9 fm we have amrit and amy gill in from hotel st louis and this 130 room hotel it's going to fly the flag of marriott international's autograph collection 165,000 square feet building that has been uh was originally built in 1893 a lewis sullivan adler and sullivan design building and uh, with some remodeling work in 1920 and they've done just a 
unbelievable job of bringing this beauty back to life. So let's talk about, I was reading about this, uh, it was after Henry Shaw's house was moved, that this property, like you said, uh, it was $8,000 a linear foot on olive, Mm -hmm. and then on locust it was $2,000 a linear foot. So this was prime real estate in St. Louis. It was the most expensive real estate deal ever done in St. Louis. Uh, you know, it was, it was in today's dollars, just the land alone was $138 million. Yeah, it, it is crazy. And the, uh, I found this, this fascinating that the land was sold, uh, and they sold the rights to, I guess, to build the building, but the land was sold for a 99-year lease at $10,000 a year. And one of the chief people who was involved in that was the founder of the Chicago trade. And so it's like all of this stuff kind of, you know, Chicago and Lewis Sullivan, who had his offices up there, but he was building in St. Louis, built uh, the uh, St. Nicholas Hotel also, and there's another building that was knocked down. Um, well, the, four, four buildings, I believe. Uh, yeah, I can't four. remember the name of the last building, but yeah. But the St. Nicholas was knocked down, which is really a shame because it was another Lewis Sullivan building that was downtown. And then uh, one of the funny things that we haven't quite dug deeply enough to find out is there is a Sella family person whose maiden name is Adler. So during that time period, so I have a feeling that there's some familial connection Connection, between the Adler who was the architect and the Adler who ended up in St. Louis, whose family ended up commissioning the building of the hotel. But I, we haven't gotten pure speculation yet. at this point. <laughs> yes, he also did uh, things we probably would not see, uh, some mausoleums. Actually, he did uh, Val Fountain Cemetery. Yeah, yeah. Wainwright's uh, his wife's mausoleum, which is kind of called the the Taj Mahal of Missouri or St. Louis. It's it's this unbelievable kind of structure there, and several other mausoleums he did in in uh, Chicagoland. So the guy really uh, and. and we're going to talk more about him in the second hour, but uh, he was he was a very interesting individual. You know, something that a lot of people don't know is there's only 30 Lewis Sullivan buildings still in existence in the United States, which is out of 256 that were built. Wow, yeah, it's a shame. That's a shame. And um, some of the better ones are actually in small towns in um, Iowa and. Uh, places like that. And the reason why uh, we did, I did some research on this a while ago is there was a company called the Bank Building Corporation of America. And those guys, uh, they were, it was a, a bunch of banks, bankers. And of course they had money and they commissioned these great architects to do great bank buildings, right? Across the Midwest. Including and Daniel so, Burnham. Yeah, yeah. Daniel Burnham, Lewis Sullivan. So there are these amazing bank buildings. There's one in Clinton, Iowa that we know of, one in Sioux City, Iowa, where hmm. they had these amazing architects build these amazing buildings in the middle of you know, nowhere, nowhere. basically. <laughs> but uh, but the buildings have survived, which is really cool. And um, But there's only 30 Lewis Sullivan buildings in existence, and two of them are right downtown. Yeah, and those are the only two in Missouri. But the name of our restaurant kind of pays homage to that fact as well, the fact that there's only 30. There's only 30. And mm-hmm. and it was also the, uh, this building was the 30th. Building on the National Register. On the National Register, right. That's that's very interesting. So you walk into the hotel, you see, uh, you know, you have a, a lobby like you normally do. 
But uh, let's talk about some of the uh, amenities that you have there at the, at the hotel. Union 30, the, the restaurant there, that is a breakfast, lunch, and dinner rest, uh, mm-hmm. restaurant, correct? Mm-hmm. And it's an homage to the fact that it was the Union Trust building, but also that it's a union between, um, you know, St. Louis foods. Um, our chef likes to say it's w- what your mom would do if she went to culinary school, grandma. or what your grandma, grandma would make would if she just, went yeah. to culinary school. And so um, it's definitely St. Louis-based and St. Louis-themed. And we have 128 local St. Louis food purveyors who have food there. I think that things Multiple that, farms and bakeries and, you know, so... So things that we're really proud of, for example, is uh, one of the local uh, bakers does uh, gooey butter cake, which, of course, you know, we're St. Louis. We love gooey butter cake. The thing that people don't realize, and we haven't publicized it because then people won't eat it, (laughs) is it's gluten-free gooey butter cake. What? And (laughs) so we let people eat it, and then we tell them it's gluten-free because otherwise I was afraid they wouldn't try it. But it's so amazing, and it's this local girl who's a baker in St. Louis and has her own little bakery. In Webster. In Webster, yeah. yeah. Wow. And, and, you know, our granola is made by people from Kirkwood. And, you know, so everything that we incorporated into our menu, we tried to get local people to supply us. Um, just to have a little fun with it. I mean, we we have Gus's pretzels in the afternoon. We, you know, because it's all stuff that we love. Right, right. 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 Well, there's over 165 local St. Louis vendors that are providing goods and services to the hotel right now. And what a great thing for them, but what a great thing for the hotel and the people who come to stay that they see, wow, look at all this. This is what's going on in St. Louis. You're, you're kind of like a a nexus point for a lot of businesses where people might be coming in from out of town and getting a, a, their first glimpse of St. Louis. And mm-hmm. it's a it's a very positive one. And we talked about that off the air, about right. that we need to be more positive. And we've also discussed it on the show. We need to be more positive about the things that are going on in St. Louis that actually are, are good and are working well. They're amazing. And, yes. and, and really uh, capitalize on that. So I have the a dinner menu in front of me, Missouri foraged mushroom ravioli. Uh, we've also got... Um, I love this classic hill fettuccine Alfredo. Then we've got some the Redbird Brewster, the St. Louis South Cider. A couple of interesting things too in the um, the dining room area. <coughs> your uh, bless you. Their um, the uh, napkins are. It, it's it's like you're at your grandma's. grandma's house. Yes. <laughs> so when we were doing the restaurant, I, I always you know you go to a restaurant and they always have like the fancy knives and forks and then they have like your white napkin and i just thought it would be really fun um my mushroom friend says we foraged for uh napkins and um for silverware in every resale shop in Missouri, basically. <laughs> um, the Miriam shop ladies now know me by name. And, um, and they're appreciative. And uh, so we went out and got, um, you know, uh, silver plate and, uh, you know, grandma's napkins and lots of linen napkins. Lot, they're keep, mismatched. Yeah. Just like grandma would put at, at the table. Right. You know, it's more just homey. Her grandma. That's what she did. It's right. homey. And so we, I always laugh. Somebody's going to show up and say, you know, oh, my gosh, this is my family's silverware <laughs> yeah. growing up. But, There's our uh, emblem right there. Right. Exactly. But um, 
But just to make it, you know, more a real taste of St. Louis, I feel like that's... So, so coming back to the mushroom ravioli and the hog jowl ravioli, Ooh. we make the filling. Ooh. We then send it to the pasta company. I believe it's the one down on Cherokee. Yeah, yeah. They make the ravioli for us and ship it back to us. Okay. So it's a little more effort. It's, in fact, a lot more effort to do it this way. But it's fresh. And it's it's wonderful. And you've got a huge kitchen down there. You told me I haven't yes. seen it, but you told me that was as big as the ballroom, and the ballroom's yeah. five thousand square feet. Yeah, that's crazy. And we make our own bacon in house, and we, yeah, we, um, we do our own pickles in house, and you know we do a lot of stuff in house. Oh, you're 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 speaking speaking my language here now. <laughs> so we go from uh, from dining downstairs to let's shoot all the way up to the the rooftop, which will be Form Sky Bar on top of the uh, the uh, building, and you're going to have some cocktails and some small plates up there. And that's going to have that, that magnificent view of looking south toward, you can see uh, the, the old courthouse, you can see the river. It's, it's really it's going to be a destination place, frankly, I think. It'll be beautiful. And you, if you don't like that, folks, you can actually look at the terracotta, unbelievable kinds of work that was done uh, that's still on the side of the building and, and that was preserved. And then you have a spa that's going to be there. Correct. Yes. But in between the form uh, uh, rooftop bar and um, um, the hotel, we have apartments. We have luxury apartments as well. Okay. So. And if they people want to, uh, they can they can call Hotel St. Louis for some information on the apartments there. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Or we our local yeah. leasing company is called Front Door STL. Okay. So. Um, but you know, it's funny, we have this young architect who works for us and I have to give him a shout out. Nathan Zero is our architect. There you go, Nathan. And, uh, <laughs> but he, he had so much fun with this project. It was, it's almost as much fun for us. We have all these young people who work for us and, um, he had almost as, you know, it's fun for us to watch them work on these projects because they're so passionate and um, Nathan's a young guy from Chicago, came to Missouri to go to college, married a girl from from Kirkwood, right? Thanks, Sarah. There you go. And, uh, and, you know, now St. Louis is his home. They have a home in Benton Park. And, you know, just watching how um, they just fell in love with the city of St. Louis and how he's fallen in love with this building and, you know, has every day he's down there six, eight hours a day, you know, just making sure that the project is perfect. It's really been a lot of fun. Well, and you're working on the father of architecture's building. And that's, that's like, for any architect, that would be the thing to do. Yeah, well, and he grew up in Chicago. Yeah, and you know, yeah. going on yeah. Lewis Sullivan field trips, and right. then here he is, or, or the and, River and, Architecture or, Tour, or Frank Lloyd Wright field trips. Yes, and strangely enough, Frank Lloyd Wright had a hand in this building. I'm glad you said that because I didn't know that that Frank Lloyd Wright actually was worked as an understudy for right. six years for. Um, uh, or Lewis Sullivan. Lewis Sullivan, yeah. yes. And we didn't know that he had anything to do with this building until we went to New York at the Museum of Modern Art, and there was a letter there from Frank Lloyd Wright talking about this building. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, we didn't, we had no clue. We had no we, idea. There was a Frank Lloyd Wright exhibit at the museum, and, you know, like you try to good, be good parents, you drag your kids to museums, right? And so we drag our kids to the museum, and we're like, oh, there's a Frank Lloyd Wright exhibit, and the kids are like, oh, no, please. <laughs> yeah, We're going to have to Another read one? every plate now. Right, and so we said, okay, you know. So we go in, and, and there's this letter from Frank Lloyd Wright saying this is going to be, this project in St. Louis is going to be my last one before I, he went out on his own. Mm. 
And so, so that really makes you, you know, kind of laugh that here we are in a project that Frank Lloyd Wright worked on. Well, and I see some similarities in some of his work and design and Sullivan's design, like the hand, uh, not handrails, but the um, stairway. Uh, there's a word for that. I can't recall it right now. The metalwork that you see yeah. going up, oh, and okay. even on on the elevators, and and just on a lot of the terracotta kinds of things. Well, here's an interesting factoid. All the uh, uh, Lewis Sullivan buildings that are standing today are just blocks. They're just a solid square block. Even the Wainwright, it's just a square block. The St. Nicholas Hotel was a square block. This building, Lewis Sullivan designed as a capital H and built the Southern U, and then Ames and Young in 1905 added on uh, one leg of the, of the northern part. But... You don't see Lewis Sullivan buildings that are designed with these light wells in the middle. No, no. This is, this is a very unusual building because of that. And you showed me when we were down there where <clears throat> that uh, northwest leg of the H was going to be put on because there's actually, they look like doors, but they're, they're windows that are full length. Right. And Correct. where eventually that was supposed to go on at some point of time. I didn't even know it was, I thought, well, I guess they decided to add on to this building and they did it in the same kind of structure, but I didn't know it was originally designed that It was originally like that. designed that place. Wow. And I think that was Frank Lloyd Wright's influence on the design, or at least, mm-hmm. you know, that's yeah. our it impression. It Because it's very more light-focused than Sullivan ever was, you know. And hmm. Frank Lloyd Wright was very light-focused. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think that's interesting as well. It is. So you've got uh, a pool. Also, I didn't mention that. As you're sitting in the... Uh, the uh, top of the uh, form sky bar, you can look across and, and see the pool there. Actually, you can sit next to the pool if you want and be served uh, your lunch or whatever. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, in outside. good weather. I wouldn't advise it today. <laughs> <laughs> a little chilly today. Um, fitness center, like most hotels would. Room service, different kind of experience. You have some meeting rooms. Listen to uh, Folks, listen to this. You have the Vincent Price meeting room, the Josephine Baker meeting room, Maya Angelou boardroom, the T.S. Eliot meeting room, the Betty Grable meeting room, the ballroom, and then the Union Club lounge. Inside each, what makes each unique and what makes them all similar? Well, I think um, two of the one of the one of the boardrooms, one of the meeting rooms have the circular windows, which people are always in awe of. Those are so beautiful, but I think. Um, one of the fun things that we did was we tried to incorporate St. Louis artists into the hotel. So we have a dear friend who's an artist, who's an amazing artist. Her name is Fern Taylor. And she did the paintings of the people for the hotel. So each one of those rooms has a, an individual painting of that person in the room. Um, it, it's funny to me, uh, most of them don't have relatives that are still here in St. Louis. But um, Vincent Price's daughter actually lives here. She's a St. Louis native. And um, so we were able to show her her dad's portrait. And um, cool. she was thrilled with it. It was actually really sweet. She said, my dad would have loved this. In so, she said it would probably have been his favorite portrait of yeah. himself. So, yeah. Which I thought was incredibly sweet. And, Absolutely. Um, and it's so funny that, you know, these St. Louis ties to people. But we tried to pick people that were not only from St. Louis, but loved their hometown. And and I think that that's pretty cool that all those people really did like their hometown. Yeah, I was going to say, how did you pick those individuals? I imagine that was difficult. Uh, it wasn't that difficult. I mean, certainly Tennessee Williams' name came up, but we didn't think he really liked this place that much. So yeah. he got <laughs> he's out. not represented. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, um, but it, it was fun. And then in both of our uh, boardrooms, there are tables that are made by some young men from South St. Louis Studio Pseudo. And they're, um, you know, true St. Louis Southside hipster dudes, right? And who make homemade beautiful tables and we commissioned them to make these enormous boardroom tables out of um, Missouri walnut and so so that's really fun for us to be able They're to have very something very Frank Lloyd Wright mm-hmm. you know tables mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the, handmade yeah, by handmade. these guys with love. The right? legs on those and the, and the wall on top was just gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. You talk about uh, South Side and some really giving uh, honor to the St. Louis spirit. Uh, I don't know if you want to say about the little card that you have in the rooms. <laughs> Oh, which which one? We we had a lot of fun with the with, with the, the stuff water, in the, the rooms, but we have a we have a, a card in the room. We give away metal water bottles, and um, we have a card in the room that basically says St. Louis has the best tasting water in the United States. And one of the things that I'm written, I notice we travel a lot, and um, you know, you go to a hotel, you walk in, they give you bottled water. You go up to your room, there's bottled water. You go to bed, there's bottled water. You wake up in the morning, you drink a bottle of water, and then when you leave, you take bottles of water with you, and all. Of that, as we all know, is not it's not going to be feasible in the long term for us to do this, right? right? These bottles go somewhere. Goes to and the Pacific Ocean. There's an island, a floating that's island. Correct. That's that correct. That gets bigger so, every year. And so it's plastic. We just decided that we were not going to contribute to that. So we don't do bottled water at the hotel. We encourage people to take the water from the tap. It's beautiful St. Louis, Missouri water, and it tastes great. And um, just take it with you, you know, so you can take the water bottles that we have in your room and just take them with you. And our tagline at the end is, if you're not a water drinker, some people aren't, um, just go down to the bar and drink our beer because it's all local beer made from local water. <laughs> there you are. And and you also talk about the, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, that's got the... No. Oh, wash. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. We, we say uh, if you'd like to have your linens washed, like most hotels, we don't want to wash the linens every day. It does add to, again, pollution. And um, so uh, we we say, you know, we'll wash your linens every other day. But if you need us to do it, we'll be happy to wash it for you. Wash it, yeah. And it's spelled W-A-R-S-H. <laughs> that is not a typo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, what's going on there? <laughs> Oh, any things that um, you all think our listeners would find interesting about this place? Uh, you're open for business now, uh, for the, di- the dining experience, uh, also as for well stays. As, the, as well as the hotel. Right, yes. as well as the hotel. <laughs> and the expectation of uh, everything kind of being done, like the, the lounge upstairs, and uh, that's just pretty coming oh, up pretty yeah, quickly. We're, yeah, and uh, it'll all be open on the Sky Bar area by by the 1st of March. Okay. Um, you know, one of the things that we had a lot of fun with, I do have to give a shout out to Tom Ray at Vintage Vinyl, since this is a radio station. Um, Tom <laughs> Papa Ray, uh, who's an old friend because, you know, we grew up, we grew in, up the loop in the loop. And, <laughs> um, so we asked him to curate a record collection for us. And there's a record player in every room. It's a Crosley record player made by a guy in St. Louis. So big shout out to them. Yeah. And uh, so Tom Ray curated a record collection for us. There's records in every room and um, a record player in every room. And for the younger people who don't know how to play a record, it is also a Bluetooth player. (laughs) But um, for those of us who grew up knowing and loving vinyl, it's just another St. Louis thing that um, we thought might 
inspire people to go out and explore some of our live music scene because we right. have an amazing live music scene in Missouri. Um, go to Vintage Vinyl, buy albums. Mm-hmm. They'd love to have you there. And right. um, it's just another way to promote something that I feel like is very uniquely St. Louis. You can go out in St. Louis any night of the week and hear 50 different bands, 50 different kinds of bands. Really good bands. Yes. It's yes. an amazing music scene. And so um, it's just our way of kind of promoting that in St. Louis. Well, and you, and you promoted as, as we flow through the rooms, as we walked into rooms. You, uh, there's also a, a, a bedroom, and then there's like a sitting room area. There's a couple of those, uh, several of those, I should say. Uh, but you see the, the flow and the design on the carpet, on the, on the walls, on the draperies, on the designs of the lamps. And everything is really woven in, as I imagine Lewis Sullivan would have would have done, as as Frank Lloyd Wright also did in in his uh, homes that he designed in buildings. So I really uh, saw a tremendous thought process and and um, and and love for. You have to fall in love with these buildings, and you say you're a you know a building hugger, but yeah. it's just true. They 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 capture you, and you you imagine what it's what was it like in its heyday, right when it was opened, and how can we recreate that and create that effect for the people who walk in? I think you've done a tremendously marvelous job of doing that, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, you know, so it's, much. it was fun. We did a custom wallpaper in the rooms that's based on the on the. Lewis Sullivan design. The, I, we the terracotta tried. up on the roof is actually pulled into the rooms. Yeah. And then to bring St. Louis into it, we designed the headboards to look like the arch. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. just a little fun, have, having fun, with, you know, um, well, all these Bringing all St. these Lewis. historic buildings become a labor of love, but this one was truly a labor of love for both of us, and and kind of our gift to the to the people of St. Louis. Do you have a? Uh, uh, so you'll probably get some time back in your lives. Then uh, you won't have to be going down there all the time, or you you're working on, on future projects already. I'm sure you know one ends, another one begins, or they kind of cross over each other mm-hmm. like that. Well, we start the Seven Gables in on Monday uh, over in Clayton. Clayton yeah. uh, doing a last week on we that. started on the Warrior Hotel in Sioux City, Iowa, which is an entire city block uh, uh, in the middle of Sioux City, uh, and their iconic hotel there. So. We're hoping to help them restart a revitalization of their downtown as well. Um, I think the funny thing is with everything we do is thinking through how do you revitalize, Mm -hmm. you know, a downtown. It was funny for us. We would have never done a building in downtown Clayton. Definitely not who we are or what we (laughs) thought we would ever do. But the thing about it was that the... The guy who runs development in Clayton is yeah, actually from Davenport, Iowa. Oh, wow. And So he kind of knows our work. Yes. And so he, he came to us, us and we... said, you really need to buy the Seven Gables in because we don't want somebody to tear it down and put up a high rise. Right. It's one of the oldest buildings in Clayton. That's correct. That's so, correct. So anyway. But, well, you've been listening to Amrit and Amy Gill talk about Hotel St. Louis and the work that they've done here in St. Louis, also in Iowa. And just the tremendous uh, things that Restoration St. Louis has provided uh, for our area that maybe you didn't know about, and maybe you've been in some of these buildings and didn't know, and like, wow, that's a great building. That you know, look what you know. I go down to the uh, the Moolah and watch movies, and it's just a, a great facility to walk in to see that building restored to uh, some of its glory, and uh, to be able to see some of the things that are going on and know some of the plans that are going to be happening to really continue to 
push St. Louis forward, revitalize it, build a positive atmosphere and a positive direction. Uh, thank you very much for, for coming on the show and for doing that for our community in St. Louis. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Well, folks, uh, you know, I always uh, do a return to civility, and I have to do that while they're here because number 121 says, remember that hotel walls are not soundproof. Respect your fellow travelers and allow everyone to get a good night's sleep by keeping the volume down when you're overnighting at a hotel. Don't forget to keep quiet in the hallways too. Long, narrow hallways amplify sound. And I can tell you, the hallways at Hotel St. Louis are not long and narrow. They really give a wide open space and an inviting space as you walk into your room and then you can have a restful night's sleep because I don't know if I'd sleep, I'd be looking out the window too much at the terracotta on the walls out there. <laughs> I'd just be really absorbing all that. So uh, great art and architecture and architecture being the 3D art that we know. This is Arnold Stricker of Intune. You're listening to KWRHLP 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the host, guest, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station or the Webster Rockio Ministries, its management, or other host or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented on KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker. Ellie Wharton is on assignment, and she will be back next week. And if you missed our first hour, wow, you missed a great time talking to the Gills, Amrit and Amy, who have been rehabbing Hotel St. Louis. It is an autograph collection boutique hotel that is part of the Marriott uh, group. They've been doing this. Uh, it's a Marriott International Autograph Collection hotel, and it's uh, the Restoration St. Louis Second Hotel, which is part of the Marriott Group, they did one in Davenport, Iowa, and this is a Lewis Sullivan building that was built in 1893, and we're going to talk more about Lewis Sullivan here, but first I wanted to give you a return to civility. You know, I read these every week, and it's the A Speed of Laughter Project by John Sweeney and the Brave New Workshop, and today on the 11th day of the year, our return to civility is... And the gills will know this. Share your knowledge and passion. Teach someone how to play a sport or game or how to build or create something. Spread your joy. So we want to be civil. We want to learn to be more civil in our society, in our community, and in our area. And that's one way that you can go about doing that is share some of your particular knowledge and passion with someone. And by the way, I'm going to go ahead and read (laughs) the—this is for day number 121, but it relates to our— our uh, discussion today. Remember that hotel walls are not soundproof. Respect your fellow travelers and allow everyone to get a good night's sleep by keeping the volume down when you're overnighting at a hotel. Don't forget to keep quiet in the hallways too. Long, narrow hallways amplify sound. Just thinking about that and your fellow traveler as you're out and about. So Lewis Sullivan, 
who was this guy who we know very famously for the Wainwright building in St. Louis, and that's the building that gets most of the publicity for Lewis Sullivan, and rightfully so, because it was supposedly, and there's some some people who might argue this, but it was the first skyscraper building before they had to just uh, build upon uh, stone upon stone. They did not have a iron superstructure, but it was the first building to have an iron superstructure. But the building we just talked about, Hotel St. Louis, which was the Union Trust building uh, built in 1893, really is a gem that's kind of like, uh, my words, the red-headed stepchild who is in the corner. It is a building that is just unbelievable, folks, and you need to go down and see it. Just stand outside across the street and gaze up at what's going on. Look at everything that we see. You know, I was driving through downtown on the way down there, and you have to pay attention, obviously. Uh, There's a lot of construction going on down there, a lot of one-way streets. You don't want to go down the wrong one-way street. But if you can get out of your car and just take a walking tour, they have a walking architectural tour, and take a look at the buildings and what they offer. Obviously, some of them are have been decaying over some time, but there's been a lot of renovation downtown, and there's just a lot of beautiful uh, work that's going on. On some of these buildings, on this particular building, there, there are uh, what I want to call like lion heads. Uh, I'm looking at that now on my camera that I took some pictures. There's these lion heads that are just protruding from in between uh, floors of, a, of the upper level, and I guess it's up uh, like the 15th floor, something like that. So look up when you're going downtown to take in all that architecture. So let's talk about Lewis Sullivan. He was uh, born in Boston in 1856, and obviously he's, he's been regarded as kind of the uh, father of American uh, architecture, modern American architecture, and as we uh, did discuss earlier, really the originator of the early skyscraper as we know it, because they were only four or five stories tall. That's as, that's as high as they could go. He has more than uh, 100 works that he collaborated with uh, Adler, and uh, one of the famous ones, which is still standing in Chicago, the Auditorium Building, uh, the Guarantee Building in Buffalo, New York, which is now called the Prudential Building, and the Wainwright Building here in St. Louis. And we did mention in the previous hour that... One of his apprentices is a is another famous architect in his own right. That's Frank Lloyd Wright, and he spent six years there in in tutelage, and then went into his own uh, practice and just went into his own fame on his own. But there is um, Louis Sullivan was was uh, his father was a dancer, his mother. Um, was uh, Swiss, and uh, his father was Irish. They immigrated to the United States at the uh, beginning of the 1850s, and he had an older brother. They attended school in Boston, and they were out at a grandparents' farm. But they moved to Chicago in 1869, and he stayed back with his grandparents when his, when his family uh, went to Chicago. And he eventually, uh, when he got old enough, he entered uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, which was the first architectural school in the United States, founded in 1865, was very kind of an impatient person because he, you know, you wonder sometimes if people who do these kinds of designs and who are very brilliant and are on the cutting edge like Sullivan was and like Frank Lloyd Wright was and some of these people who are really pushing uh, very much, I would say, like Picasso, uh, that they're very impatient with 
going through the motions of learning the basic kinds of trends, or maybe his his vision and his trends were beyond what he what he thought was going on. I also think of uh, Tesla. Uh, I'm not thinking about the car right now. I'm thinking about the individual who was really way ahead of, of his time, but he was working with uh, uh, an architect um, and suggested that maybe he. He would go to uh, Paris, but instead he, he went to uh, uh, Philadelphia, worked there for a few months, but he, he did end up going to Paris. And I don't know if Paris was not what he thought it was going to be, or it, he was still had this kind of urge to continue to develop and design his own ideas, but he was only there a year. And then he came back to Chicago in 1875 and worked as a draftsman for a number of firms there. And, and eventually he got... Uh, uh, associated with Adler, and and they and joined their office when he was at the old age of 24. He became a partner. So they were they were working. Here you have these. Uh, at least Sullivan was a young guy working, who had this visionary uh, understanding and belief of what architecture could be, i.e., the words of form and and function that they need to work together. That buildings just don't. You just don't throw a building up, and it's, it's going to serve this particular function. But you design the building to enhance the function, and they both work hand-in-hand. Hand. So he associated with Adler back in uh, 1879 when they joined them and 1881 when they became a partner. And they, they were together for 14 years and, and put out more than 100 buildings, many of them uh, landmarks that we see around the area and around the country. So his... Um, Adler had a had a unique ability himself. He was a draftsman, but he also uh, was a very uh, technical acoustic engineer. And one of his uh, focal points was when they designed the uh, Central Music Hall in Chicago. He was the uh, acoustical engineer, one of the early ones, which ended up being a prototype of many theaters that were later designed by them. And that building is the uh, one that's still standing in Chicago that is a uh, uh, Roosevelt University is housed in that building right now. But they did some residential work. Uh, The commercial work was mainly where they put their uh, historic uh, contribution of art and architecture. So we talked about uh, the early years. They didn't really do uh, buildings that had any lasting impact, but once they started to get commissions i.e. the auditorium building in Chicago, it really started to mature uh, Sullivan's uh, design. And that particular project was the combination of a hotel and an office block wrapped in a U-shape. This is kind of this what uh, uh, Amrit was talking about, this, this, the U-shape actually of the, uh, the building that they have now at Hotel St. Louis. But this, this uh, Chicago project auditorium building was a 10-story building of granite and limestone with a 17-story tower. And one of the problems they had with it was how, how they were going to complete it because the foundation of, of where it was was actually some uh, loomy clay. In other words, it was kind of shifting clay. So they came up with this design. They took these huge railroad ties. They put pitch on them. And then they ended up putting steel on top of that, and then they poured a lot of concrete, and it was this unbelievably, like a floating uh, barge on top of clay in which this building is is sitting. So that was some of the ideas created to kind of make that work for that. The interior design of this particular uh, building is just 
crazy with uh, ornament and colored stencil patterns, and Sullivan was very big in the ornamentation, as you as you see in many of his plaster work, and as you go down to Hotel St. Louis, you can see that in the designs that have been uh, thoroughly uh, incorporated in the in the renovation and in the original part of the building. And so this acoustical design Adler completed on his own. And so you have this building that was actually housing the Chicago Symphony Orchestra for many, many years. And now I think Joffrey Ballet uh, is in that particular facility. So uh, they moved into the office tower of the 16th floor of that tower. It was the highest office suite in Chicago. It was the highest building. And you have to remember this is... Uh, uh, you had the Chicago Fire, you had the renovation of buildings, you have technology improving, you have the Industrial Revolution, you have uh, Sullivan creating now the steel structure buildings at which things can be held on, and now you start to see the development of buildings more than five and six stories, and this particular one stood out in Chicago for a variety of reasons. So he was with him, and young Frank Lloyd Wright, and uh, Wright left, her, left after a quarrel, with Sullivan. Sullivan was, uh, he had difficulties in relationships. I don't know if it was something that uh, he had in his life or he was just, uh, had a focal point for how he wanted to do things and it was his way or the highway. I'm not quite sure. That would be an interesting study of my own, or, or you could read that. He did write a little semi uh, autobiography. But then came the 10 story Wainwright building in St. Louis, which is probably the most important skyscraper designed by Sullivan other than Hotel St. Louis, which is, I won't call it this, it is a skyscraper, but it's not a business building. It was originally. But unlike the auditorium building, the exterior walls, of which, of which are solid masonry and load-bearing, it's a steel frame throughout. So the steel frame, which what you see as buildings go up now, they're not solid masonry and load-bearing as they were at one time. So uh, that idea was advanced by William Jenny in Chicago in the late 1880s. And uh, Sullivan, he kind of uh, took this on and gave the Wainwright building a unbelievable two-story base, and he designed these vertical elements to stress the vertical looking up. He designed in the first two stories the horizontals being recessed and minimized, and, I, and you see that when you drive by the hotel and you, and you look at the Hotel St. Louis building also. So these are things um, that... We don't really appreciate when we walk into a building. We just kind of walk into a building because we have a destination. Our destination is I'm going to the doctor's office or the dentist's office or I'm going into uh, uh, a, uh, a CPA's office or I'm going into an attorney's office or I have to go into this department store. So you don't, you're, you're on a destination. The destination is not to look at the building. The destination is what's in the building. But Sullivan also capitalized on that. He made the form and function marry up together. Those two also collaborated on, I didn't know this, I thought it was very interesting, the Chicago um, Columbian Exposition in 1893. They, they did a design on the transportation building, which if you know anything about that particular Columbian Exposition, it was often called, all the buildings were white because of all the plaster that was going on. They weren't really uh, buildings that were going to stand. But this particular building, the, the transportation building, stood apart. It was painted in various kind of strong colors to protest the, the, the white that was seen throughout the, uh, the, the World's Fair at that Columbian Exposition. It was also a uh, kind of an arcade, a, an archway entrance. It was called the Golden Door. And it was kind of a um, some some grandeur there. There was there, it was not just a plane. You go in there. They really 
made this a, a, an entrance that you would want to go into. And he said that they weren't really appreciated then, and he mentions in his autobiography that the damage wrought by the World's Fair will last for half a century from its date, if not longer. It has penetrated deep into the constitution of the American mind. Sullivan really wanted to move people beyond what they saw as going to a, a place for a destination, but that the building itself would be a destination which enhanced why they were there. So again, I, I mentioned that he was kind of uh, difficult in relationships. He was kind of um, arrogant, which is not under, understandable, <laughs> un, un, not understandable for uh, uh, people who are very focused on, in what they do, whether it's an architect or an artist or a, an educator or a, an attorney or whomever. But he was not prone, um, he was prone to give advice and stick his nose where it really didn't belong, and he lost many clients because of that. And uh, his last uh, 30 years, he only had 20 commissions, which was uh, very low in comparison to what he had initially done uh, along the way. But he got some other uh, major commissions. One was for the uh, Schlesinger and Mayer department store in Chicago. Uh, another one was a, uh, a building that actually Daniel Burnham had done, uh, he followed, uh, he added on to Sullivan's original design, and uh, there's, there's kind of a, a richness in, in, in uh, some of the, the heightened uh, areas when you look at a Sullivan building. Like when you look at the Hotel St. Louis building, you see the first two floors being very uh, much directing your eyes uh, horizontally. Then there's the... the in between vertical, and then at the top, he caps it off with something that complements kind of the, the base of the building, which gives us a, a, uh, a very f fluid and yet um, complete structure for the eye visually. He was, a, um, he was married, uh, somewhat of a, secluse, a recluse, though, and he, he did write. Uh, he, his marriage didn't really bring him some happiness. Uh, he was separated from his wife, and then they ended up uh, divorced, and he didn't have any children. He is, uh, because his notoriety was really never realized, and because of his uh, personality type and his uh, kind of sticking his nose where it didn't belong and saying things that maybe he should have uh, tempered, he uh, ended up dying poor and ended up uh, in one room of a, just a bedroom. He was, had an office in the uh, Chicago building, but then he had to move out of that because he couldn't pay for things. He was forced to sell his library. He really died penniless. He did work on some uh, bank buildings, as um, uh, Amy uh, mentioned in our previous hour, and uh, some of these are, are very well known in small Midwestern towns. The National Farmers Bank in Awatana, Minnesota. Uh, so he uh, really struggled with uh, getting some things done. His last uh, commission was in Chicago in 1922 in the Krauss Music Store, but he had to abandon his uh, office in the auditorium tower and lived in a bedroom, which was actually paid for by his friends. So his workplace became a desk. He was able to complete uh, uh, part of writing his autobiography, and the completion of 19 plates for a system of architectural ornament according with a philosophy of man's powers from 1924. Uh, after he got copy, copies of that, he died in 1924. And he was uh, 
honored finally in 1946 by the AIA, the American Institute of Architects, which awarded him the gold medal. So really his, his legacy, uh, besides the 30 buildings that are left of all the, those that he has designed, are some of his ideas. And some of his ideas have been traced back to um, Horatio Greenow, who's a sculptor, and also Ralph Waldo Emerson, who's an essayist, and also to Charles Darwin, where they tried to evolve uh, things on an organic level, and tried to he tried to evolve a building on an organic level to include this is why where this this phrase again form and function comes from and form follows function that buildings should should not just be there for their own edification but they should be there to enhance why they are there and and the particular um, uh, use of the building he said that architecture must evolve from and express the environment in addition to expressing its particular function and its structural basis. So he was really the first American architect to think of this relationship between architecture and the people, the civilization, that actually used the building. Uh, his, um, the Wainwright building we, we have talked about, he, his autobiography, uh, it's called Sullivan's Autobiography of an Idea and Kindergarten Chats, which is very interesting, I'd like to read that, are uh, important in architectural theory. He has uh, really done a lot with the Union Trust Building, which we're going to delve into here, uh, a little bit more history of that. But his um, one of the things I, I really would like for people to understand is that St. Louis was a mecca for art and architecture back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. It was a place in which uh, you would go to, matter of fact, it was Washington University, St. Louis School of Fine Arts, where individuals were drawn from around the world to study and to perfect their, their craft and their art. And then architects are actually 3D artists. You, you see them, they can do 2D art, but they're doing 3D art. And we have uh, these Louis Sullivan buildings and other just wonderful buildings downtown St. Louis that have... Uh, some have gone into decay, and some of them have been vacant for a long period of time, but many, many are being renovated, and, and not to um, just throw things up and renovate them and have, quote-unquote, loft buildings, but they are being renovated to a, the time in which they were built, i.e., I'm talking about like, like the Hotel St. Louis, which was the Union Trust Company building. And again, it was uh, built in 1893, 1892-93. So it's one block— east of the post office, the old post office. So those of you who are familiar with downtown uh, and Olive Street, you can, if you know the old post office, this is one block east. It's a 14-story building, steel-clad construction. It's got buff-colored brick, and there's some terracotta. It's the only building by the firm which features an exterior light court. And that uh, buff-colored brick, they thought, oh, this isn't going to be a problem. It'll stay buff-colored. Well, you know, St. Louis was very coal-oriented, coal-fired, uh, for uh, electricity and heat, and there was a day when it was so dark with the cold uh, smoke that they sent people home. You couldn't see very much in front of you. All that coal dust and coal ash ended up being soaked into a lot of the brick downtown. That particular building was cleaned. I talked to Amrit about that, and they did clean the building, not with a uh, a stringent kind of cleaner, but a, a, a cleaner that would get it off and would be sensitive to the brick because a lot of these things are very uh, acidic. So in 1905, there was a, uh, an addition 
that was constructed on the northeast end. This is what Amrit and Amy were talking about, in that the building was initially designed as a U. This was part of the northeast leg of the H, and this was designed by the St. Louis uh, architectural firm Ames and Young, and it was they really followed the design. It was very fluid when we walked from the main building to that wing. You didn't even know it. Uh, it was it was really interesting. So the two stories were, had richly embellished terracotta ornament around them. You heard. Uh, uh, Amrit and Amy talk about how those windows and the and the what I'm going to call these two uh, large lions that were placed at the corner and that uh, that was all kind of torn out uh, for this 1920s look and a Art Deco kind of look. But if you look up, there's these terracotta bearcat heads that are between the columns. I mentioned that earlier uh, from the picture I was looking at, and there's six bands of terracotta that are going on there, and in, in di- they're all different patterns. Uh, around the cornices, and they enclose the 15th floor and the roof where the uh, pool and where the uh, uh, bar area are going to be uh, upstairs. They have, um, that was originally an observatory, as uh, we heard, the, the form Sky Bar. So the definition, this is, this is from the St. Louis uh, newspaper in 1892, the first floor entrance, describing it as an arcade with shops or booths. It says, quote, For the sale of light and elegant merchandise, its floor will be made of marble mosaic, rich in color and design, and its walls will be lined with marble. The ceiling will be in the form of a barrel vault divided into coffers, which will be filled with stained glass. I saw one of those old pictures, and it's like the... Um, the billiard place, and they're still around in St. Louis. They make billiard tables. They were housed in one of those bottom areas down there. It was very fascinating to see the old photographs and compare it to the current photographs. Chris is intently listening to me right now, and I appreciate that, Chris, because I'm going off talking about things that I really, I, I really have a huge interest in, and and I hope our listeners do too. I'm very interested in architecture, especially preservation, which is what you've been addressing this whole hour. So yeah, and and the Gills have done a tremendous job of of doing that. So we're going to delve more into this about this building. I I'm actually. Uh, reading from the National Register of Historic Places Inventory Nomination Form for the Union Trust Company building. I'm uh, rolling through some of that information, so I don't want to bore you. I'm not going to read it all uh, straight on, but we'll uh, highlight a couple areas there. We're also going to take a look at some famous uh, African-American architects that you may or may not be aware of, and we'll have our, that will be our, our little history moment, history help moment. And then we will all end the, uh, the show today with our typical thing of some of our humor. So we want you to, um, if you get an opportunity to go downtown, there's a lot of new things happening downtown. Uh, just uh, FYI, a lot of construction, uh, road construction when you get in downtown proper. So just be careful, uh, be aware of that, and uh, just also know about the one-way streets. I don't get down there enough to know that one street's one way and one street's another way, and you can turn down the wrong way down a one-way street if you're not paying attention, especially if they do have some detours, which they do. So you're listening to Arnold Stricker of In Tune. This is KWRH LP 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. Stay tuned.
back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker. Ellie Wharton is on assignment and will be back next week. We've been talking about architecture and renovation, and if you missed our first hour, or if you missed any of our shows, as a matter of fact, this is show 52, you can go to iTunes or SoundCloud and just punch in In Tune Radio Show, KWRH, and you will find all of our shows on there. We, uh, I just posted some of those recently, actually posted about five shows recently, so you can go back and check on those, our show from last week with Mike Emerson from Pappy's Barbecue. You can listen to that one. So we've been talking about architecture and renovation. We had um, written Amy Gill on in the first hour who have been renovating Hotel St. Louis, the old Union Trust Company building down at 705 Olive, uh, which was also called 705 Olive Building at one time and have turned it into a magnificent hotel, a 130-room hotel. It's uh, part of the Marriott International's Autograph Collection, 165,000-square-foot building, and a great facility with uh, a um, many rooms, meeting rooms, boardrooms, a ballroom, uh, form Sky Bar, which will be completed shortly, Union 30, which is the dining area down down on the first floor. They have a spa and a pool fitness center and just a great place to check out. So we were talking about Lewis Sullivan a little bit, and I want to. Uh, we gave a little history of him. I'm talking more specifically right now about the original Union Trust Company building that the Gills have been renovating. So uh, some of the things that uh, are interesting about this, and uh, I know Amrit, when he talked about this when I was on a tour of the building earlier today, that he said they they tried to open up a floor, and the National Park Service said, no, you can't do that because that's not what's there. That's not, uh, right now you see just kind of a narrow hallway and going down to rooms. And he said, well, that's not really what was the original thing, and, and he did get them to realize that yeah, uh, Lewis Sullivan did have a different design for this. And matter of fact, this is what that design was. I'm, I'm quoting now. On the first floor, the East Tower contained the main banking building. I'd love to have seen the, the vault in that place. That would have been cool to see. Uh, but the floor plans of the third through the 14th story were identical. Each floor was divided into 25 offices. And matter of fact, as you stepped off the elevator of each floor, each floor covering was different. One was like white marble, one was terracotta, one was a black marble, one was something different. But here was the thing that uh, Amrit told the National Park Service. However, contemporary 19th century descriptions suggest the internal division of these floors was intended to be flexible. A promotional pamphlet for the building published in 1893 stated, quote, preparations have been made for a variety of subdivisions of the different floors, which is sure to adapt itself to the wants of tenants of the widest range of business or professional requirements, unquote. So he left those floors open, and then he had a floor plan that they would want to use if they wanted to use it. They had it set up, or they could set it up differently. So that's what allowed uh, the Gills to be able to open up the hallways for this hotel and make the hallways a little wider than they were at the time when they uh, purchased the building. Well, Arnold, if I may, one thing I noticed uh, that they were saying was that the Park Service doesn't necessarily, um, they're not, their, their mission isn't to go back to the original, but to go back to the design at the time that it was most relevant. So right. so that was with the Art Deco uh, remodel of the windows. They wanted to stick with that because the hotel was in its 
peak or heyday during that time. During that time, even though it was an older building. Yeah, and if you're capitalizing on some historic uh, monies, then you need to kind of follow th- those directives, and those directives actually uh, uh, weren't going to let them open that up. But when they came up with this particular um, document, well, in that case, they they managed to prevail. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. That's correct. Uh, other things here, these upper floors, the uh, and I I didn't know this, although I'll add on to this. Numerous office doors. Uh, still had the original doorknobs and plates on them with the Union Trust building monogram and Sullivan ornament. And if you're familiar with the Wainwright building, the Wainwright building has like a W on the doorknob, and it's this really elaborate uh, door plate. And the uh, Union Union Trust building had the same thing. Matter of fact, there is is a painting of that on the wall as you enter the lobby down there at, at Hotel St. Louis. But some of the doors were original antique oak and uh, original staircase with marble treads, filigree iron risers. Uh, what, I, what I found was very interesting when I was down there is that there apparently were two stairs from the lobby area going to the second floor. They've recreated one of those. These were all boxed off and uh, destroyed, but they, they re- have recreated them, giving more of a flow and more of a design of what it initially looked like. Uh, they, they said that uh, when the building was occupied by uh, a variety of people, attorneys and judges, and um, even I think the attorney general even had a, an office down there at one time, that one of the people who occupied the building came back during the reno- uh, after kind of the renovation had started and said, can, you sh- can I see if I can find out where my office was? And they went back there, and uh, it, w- it was interesting to, because things had kind of changed around a little bit. But some of the people's names were still on the doors. And so they were able to uh, check with families and see if families wanted those things, which I thought was very, very nice. That was uh, very well, considerate. Yeah, it gets, uh, generates community support for the project, too. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure if your, fam- if your name was on one of those doors, your probably, family probably still in a position of pretty uh, good in, in influence. Right. That's, that's so correct. That's want to keep them happy. So the uh, Union Trust building uh, was Adler and Sullivan's sole experiment with an exterior light court. Uh, a couple other things here that you might find interesting are um, the uh, the Post Dispatch really did a an, an announcement uh, of this particular facility, and it said uh, it announced that construction would begin after demolition of a four-story building already on the lot was completed. And we remember that Henry Shaw's house was there, but there was also a building there. And they said, uh, uh, the article says, the Union Trust building will be the first modern, quote-unquote, skyscraper erected at St. Louis. In the, the, the design of this building, advantage has been taken of the experiences made with similar structures in New York and Chicago, and it is believed that in the Union Trust Building, St. Louis will gain a structure which, in general plan, in construction, equipment, and artistic handling, will rank among the finest and best in the entire country, and whose design will be of so advanced a type that it will not be out of date for many years, unquote. Unfortunately, they didn't name the architects, Adler and Sullivan, who were the ones who did that. The building was also supposed to be wind uh, resistant to wind pressure and fireproof fireproof design of a building uh, only in rare instances does the plan or floor plan of this building take on an aesthetic value as this uh, a statement 
by uh, Sullivan's writing. And this usually, when the lighting court is external or becomes an internal feature of great importance, he's talking about, he was, had a comment on the light court, what they wanted to try to do is cast light, uh, natural light, into every particular office. So no office was dark, that every, every office had the opportunity to have light. Even back then, we're thinking about this, but back then they had to do that because artificial light was not uh, something that was uh, e- easily uh, obtained and procured. Uh, electric lights were just really coming on the scene uh, around the late 1800s, you know, with the uh, uh, Chicago Exposition, the Columbian Exposition in Chicago. That was the big deal when uh, that place was all lit up. There was this big fight between Tesla and Edison about who was going to have, uh, who was going to find the electricity and make it work the, the right way. And actually, I think Tesla won that one out in Chicago on the exposition. Uh, folks can check me on my, my history as my hard drive keeps spinning in my head. But anyway, Union Trust Company, for those people who didn't know, was St. Louis's second oldest trust company, and it merged with St. Louis Trust eventually. But uh, what a great facility down there. Please take time to uh, go down there and take a look at it. It's a very, uh, one of the taller buildings down there as you get down on on Olive, and uh, a great facility. So who have been some... uh, African-American architects, some, uh, some black American architects who you may or may not know. Uh, I, I read this one several, several weeks ago, and some of his work, uh, he never signed his work. Uh, he was not publicly acknowledged in his lifetime, which doesn't surprise me uh, at the time, because as the first black graduate of architecture at the University of Pennsylvania in 1902, Julian Abel, or is it Abelie? I think it's going to be able, spent his entire career at the firm uh, of Horace Trumbauer, and he was the one who actually designed, he received a commission to expand the campus of the white-only Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. And his work is celebrated on campus today. Matter of fact, the chapel, the Duke University Chapel, which is a very famous uh, building on the campus of Duke University, which has this Gothic kind of structure, he's the one that designed that. Before I, we go on here, I need to mention again, if you want to see another example of Sullivan's work, go up to, uh, I believe it's Bell Fountain Cemetery, and you can take a look at some of those mausoleums up there. Uh, here's another um, famous black architect who you may or may not be aware of. Uh, he was born in North Carolina and was considered the first academically trained and credentialed black architect in America. He grew up in North Carolina, as I said. He worked as a carpenter and a foreman. And Robert Robinson Taylor, his father, his, his father, Henry, was the son of a white slaveholder and a black mother. He was educated at MIT, just like Louis Sullivan was. Uh, he actually did the final project for his bachelor's degree, was a design for the soldier's home, housed to accommodate aging Civil War veterans. Soldier's home, as I recall, Another person that had something to do with that was um, Frederick Douglass got involved with that, but also my hard drive is spinning right now. Elizabeth Keckley was someone who was also prominent in, in working with Soldiers Home. Another person who was prominent in working with Soldiers Home was somebody who has a cemetery named after him over here in Kirkwood, and that's uh, Father Moses Dick- Dickinson. So how all these things actually move together, uh, a very small world. So Robert Robinson Taylor, he died in 1942. 
while visiting Tuskegee, and he has been honored. Uh, he has a stamp in which he is being honored, Robert Robinson Taylor. Here's another famous uh, black American architect or African-American architect, however you want to say it. Uh, Wallace Augustus Rayfield was a student at Columbia University when Booker T. Washington recruited him to be the head of the architectural and mechanical drawing department at Tuskegee. Now, we have a Booker T. Washington connection because we did interview Booker T. Washington's great-great-grandson, who is also the great-great-great-grandson of Frederick Douglass. That was an amazing interview. That was an amazing interview. We should replay that one sometime. Yeah, we should do that. Uh, So Wallace Augustus Rayfield, he worked alongside Robert Robinson Taylor in establishing Tuskegee as a training ground for future black architects. So you have those two architects combining forces together. Here's another one. Moses McKissick III was the grandson of an African-born slave who became a master builder. He joined his brother Calvin to form one of the earliest black architectural firms in the United States, McKissick & McKissick, in Nashville, Tennessee, in 1905. And their legacy today is the managing managing the design and construction of the National Museum of African American History and Culture and being the architect of record for the MLK Memorial in Washington, D.C. Now, that's, that's some pretty huge stuff right there. The McKissick family uh, reminds us architecture is not an excessively about design. Well, what's that sound like? Design, form, and function. But that all design architects depend on an architectural team. Uh, we have another one here. Clarence Cap Wigington, who was the first registered black architect in Minnesota and the first black municipal architect in the United States. He was born in Kansas, raised in Omaha, interned there, and he moved to Minnesota and took a civil service test, was hired to be the city's staff architect. He designed schools, fire stations, park structures, municipal buildings, and other landmarks that still stand in St. Paul, Minnesota. Another one, Vertner Woodson Tandy, the first registered black architect in New York State. And the reason I say this, and and even nowadays, when people will say, oh, well, you're the first um, African-American man or woman to do something, and while, this is just my opinion here. Remember, the views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests are are those of the host and guests. My opinion of that is, who is that for? That is an acknowledgment in the white community that this was the first African-American man or woman to do this. In the black community, it's maybe not the acknowledgment of that because they know that. It's kind of like we had the conversation of why Josephine Baker and why many uh, other opera singers— Josephine Baker wasn't an opera singer, but but opera singers were not acknowledged here in the States— but in Europe. And I mentioned that to Chris Mullen one time. And Chris said, well, that's true, but it's not true because they were acknowledged here in their own communities. They were recognized for what they did in their own communities. And that made perfect sense to me. So when I read that Vertner Woodson Tandy was the first registered black architect in New York State, the first black architect to belong to the American Institute of Architects, and the first black man to pass the military commissioning exam, that's a big deal maybe as a white guy reading that, but even for the, the black or the African-American community, it's a huge deal, but maybe they knew that. Yeah, it's a milestone that's in, correct. Uh, in, in racial progress. That's correct, and that's a good way to put that, Chris. So he designed Landmark Home for some of the wealthiest residents of Harlem. He is best known as one of the founders of Alpha, Phi, uh, Alpha Fraternity, and while at Cornell, he and six other 
Uh, black men formed a study and support group as they struggled through the racial prejudice of the early 20th century America. Uh, John E. Brent, the first black professional architect in Buffalo, New York. His father was the son of a slave and became the first black architect in Washington, D.C., where John was born. He was educated at Tuskegee, received his degree from Drexel Institute in Philadelphia, and he designed Buffalo's Michigan Avenue YMCA. Here's another individual, Louis Arnett Stewart Bellinger, earned a Bachelor of Science degree in 1914 from Howard University in Washington, D.C., and for a quarter of a century, he designed key buildings in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Unfortunately, uh, only a few have survived, very much like Louis Sullivan, and all have been altered. His most important work was for the Grand Lodge for the Knights of Pythias in 1928, which became financially unsustainable after the Great Depression and was remodeled to be the new Granada Theater. Another one, Paul Revere Williams, became renowned for designing major buildings in Southern California, including the Space Age LAX theme building at the Los Angeles International Airport and 2,000 homes throughout the Hollywood Los Angeles Hills area. Albert Irvin Castle shaped many academic communities in the United States. He designed buildings for Howard University, Morgan State University, Virginia University. So folks, history of architecture and the history of the African-American community, the black community, in all of these fields, it's not something new. And I would really encourage uh, students to, if they have an interest, go for it. I have found that, uh, you know, reading in our History Helps moment and preparing for that, that many of the things in after the Civil War, the war between the states during Reconstruction, things were going very, very well. We were getting the country back together in unifying and really allowing uh, those who had been slaves to be free to really understand and exercise their full rights as American citizens. Unfortunately, during uh, a time of Reconstruction, the kibosh was put on that. As uh, At that time, we had more African-American senators and House representatives and state representatives at any time than even nowadays. Uh, so we've actually gone, we went backwards. Uh, we, they gave up. The, the country gave up, yeah. and really the South, kind of the, those leaders didn't want this rise of the black community to be on an equal status, and really got involved uh, at, at the Washington, D.C. level, put the kibosh on the Reconstruction that was going. It makes you wonder what Reconstruction would have been like with Abraham Lincoln if he had been alive. Yeah, that is a, a wonderful what if. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure, I bet there's there's got to be a book about that, what if. Lincoln hadn't been assassinated, that, that goes into some of those issues. You know, I get a, a, a periodical every quarter. It's called the Lincoln Herald, and it's from the uh, Lincoln, it's not Lincoln University, it's um, the Abraham Lincoln Memorial University down in Tennessee. And they, they compile everything that's about Lincoln during that time. So during that quarter, you'll get everything that's been spoken of about him, that's been written of about him, and I will check with them and see if there is, there is a book on that. They would know, I think. Yes. I want to give you an inspirational story here. It's called The Elephant Rope. As a man was passing the elephants, he suddenly stopped, confused by the fact that these huge creatures were being held by only a small rope tied to their front leg. No chains no cages. It was obvious the elephants could, at any time, break away from their bonds, but for some reason, they did not. 
Well, he saw a trainer nearby and asked why these animals just stood there, made no attempt to get away. Well, the trainer said, when they were very young and much smaller, we used the same size rope to tie them. And at that age, it's enough to hold them. And as they grow up, they're conditioned to believe they cannot break away. They believe the rope can still hold them, so they never try to break free. The man was amazed. These animals could break free at any time from their bonds, but because they believed they couldn't, they were stuck right where they were. Well, how many of us go through life hanging on to a belief that we cannot do something simply because we failed at it once before? Failure is a part of learning. We should never give up the struggle in life. That's a good story. Here's another one. Maybe you're a business owner in town, or you've got some kind of business. Once there was an older man who was broke, living in a tiny house, and owned a beat-up car. He was living off of $99 Social Security checks. At age 65 years of age, he decided things had to change. So he thought, well, what did he have to offer? His friends raved about one of his recipes. He decided that it was his best shot at making a chance. So he left Kentucky, traveled to different states to try to sell his recipe. He told restaurant owners he had a mouth-watering recipe. He offered the recipe to them for free, just asking for a small percentage of the items sold. Sounds like a good deal, right? Well, unfortunately, the restauranters, restaurateurs didn't buy into that. He heard no over a thousand times. Even after all those rejections, he didn't give up. He believed his recipe was something special. He got rejected 1,009 times before he heard his first yes. With that one success, Colonel Hart- Hartland Sanders changed the way Americans eat chicken. Kentucky Fried Chicken, popularly known as KFC, was born. Remember, never give up and always believe in your spell, yourself in spite of rejection. KFC, boy. <laughs> yeah. Who knew? Yeah. Pepsi owns them now. Yeah. So here's a interesting thing about sometimes, you know, obstacles can be either an obstacle or they can be an opportunity, depending upon how you look at them. There once was a very wealthy and curious king. The king had a huge boulder he placed in the middle of a road. And then he hid nearby to see if anyone would try to remove the gigantic rock from the road. Well, the first people to pass by were some of the king's wealthiest merchants. Rather than moving it, they simply walked around it. A few loudly blamed the king for not maintaining the roads. Not one of them tried to move the boulder. Finally, a peasant came along. His arms were full of vegetables. When he got near the boulder, rather than simply walking around it as others had, the peasant put down his load, tried to move the stone to the side of the road. It took a lot of effort, but he finally succeeded. As the peasant was gathering up his load and was ready to go on his way, he saw a purse lying in the road where the boulder had been. The peasant opened the purse, and it was stuffed with gold coins and a note from the king. The king's note said, The purse's gold was a reward for moving the boulder from the road. The king showed the peasant what many of us have never understood. Every obstacle presents an opportunity to improve our condition. Thank you to our gallery for acknowledging that. And lastly... um, This is a short one here because we're closing in on the hour. I did read this at one time, but it's worth reading again. 
The man walked to the top of a hill to talk to God, and the man asked, God, what's a million years to you? And God said, a minute. The man asked, well, what's a million dollars to you? And God said, a penny. Then the man asked, God, can I have a penny? And God said, sure, in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've been great to listen to us today and hope that you found some uh, encouragement in those stories at the end, but also in some interest in learning about uh, Louis Sullivan, the Hotel St. Louis building, which was originally the uh, Union Trust Company building down on 705 Olive, and also about some of some famous uh, black architects who have done some influential work uh, around our country, uh, those being individuals who saw and were encouraged along the way by their families and did not see an obstacle as an obstacle, but saw an obstacle as an opportunity and didn't stop from what they were doing. So we hope you join us. If you missed our show today, please check us on iTunes and also on SoundCloud. You can catch our previous shows. This is show 52 again. We've been going on for a year now. I want to thank Chris for his studio work in there. Don't forget Ellie is on assignment, and she will be back next week. Don't forget when the Martians invade, there's only one race, the human race, and every one of us have different characteristics and is uniquely valuable. This is KWRHLP 92.9 FM. For Intune, studio manager Chris Verdesi, co-host Ellie Wharton, I'm Arnold Stricker. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, walk worthy and let your light shine.